Welcome to the 16th episode of our podcast series for the advisor considering the independent space. Today's episode is the independent advisor's legacy, planning for the end game. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. In our last episode, Matt Sonnen, founder and CEO of California-based operations and technology consultancy to billion-dollar breakaway teams, joined me to share his wisdom on what it takes to build an independent firm. In today's episode, I'd like to shift our focus a bit to the long term. Up until now, we focused on the things that drive an advisor employee to independence. Aside from asking about the math behind a move to independence, the question that prospective breakaways ask almost any other is this, what does the end game look like for an independent firm? And what these folks mean is who are the buyers? Why would someone sell? And is there a market for an RIA like I'm considering launching? So today, I've invited Nathan Backrack, co-founder and CEO of Cincinnati-based Simply Money Advisors, to join me to address all of these questions and more. What makes Nathan somewhat of an expert on the subject is because in January of this year, he merged his firm with California-based top RIA Hanson McLean with the help of private equity shop Parthenon Capital. After 20 years as a standalone independent firm managing more than $700 million in assets, Nathan felt he had hit its ceiling in terms of his ability to grow simply money the way he wanted to, and that the only way to do so was to combine forces with another like-minded, planning-focused firm. How did he feel about giving up control and ownership of the baby he had nurtured and built? The answer lies in what he got in return, scale, capacity, continuity, capital, a succession plan, and accelerated growth. I don't want to waste another minute on introductions. Let's jump right into the conversation. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today. So let's jump right into it. Tell us a little bit, if you would, about pre-merger Cincinnati-based Simply Money, the independent firm you co-founded and merged with Sacramento, California, Hanson McLean in January of this year. We had about $780 million of assets under management, average client, mass affluent, the neighbor next door, hard worker, hard saver, good saver, and not a ton of interest in doing financial plans. Certainly one of the answers to all the questions related to retirement and financial planning. And really, in the grand scheme of things, no interest in managing money on their own. And so what do you think were simply money's strengths? What are the things that you did well? And obviously, my follow-up question is going to be, what were the things that you were looking to solve for? What were the things that kept you up at night? Well, lots of things kept me up at night because when you run your own business, you know, you just worry about everything, Mindy. And then from there, hopefully uh, it gets a little less. I know the thing we've been really good at is strong brand management. 
You walk around Cincinnati. We did a survey. 52% of people looking for financial advice. If you said the name Simply Money, that meant something to them in terms of trusting us and uh, knowing we were a source for good information. Very successful at building trust in this marketplace. Heavy focus on education and media. In any given week, there were about 20 to 25 media placements through television, radio, print, uh, your local suburban press. So people really came to trust us and they trusted and understood what the name Simply Money meant. So that's what we were really good at. Uh, some things trying to solve for. Let's be clear. I'm 65. My partner is 67. What we're solving for here is a way to make sure that this place continues, that the brand continues, that the staff has a, as good or a better opportunity than they have today in case the proverbial Mack truck uh, were to get both Ed and me in a crosswalk. So we knew the services we offered uh, were something that people were looking for. We had great client satisfaction scores. We knew how to serve very well the client uh, that we served. This helped us to be one of the largest RIAs in the area. So we had a winning recipe. Now, the challenge, of course, how do you grow faster and how do you expand into new markets? And I will tell you at the end of the day, if you want to do it right, it takes capital. And if you're listening today, you sit down and figure out what you think it costs you in real dollars to acquire a client. We know specifically what that number is, and it's a pretty darn big number. Now, when you look at the lifetime economic value of a client, it's not such a bad investment. And if I told you you could put five or $10,000 to acquiring a client and they would generate $200,000 of income over the next 20 years, you'd say, well, I'd make that trade every day. But put $200,000 in acquiring 20 clients. And this is when many people start to, many advisors start to walk back and go, wow, that's, wait that's a lot of money. That's half my profit. So capital certainly was something we needed as well as I think expertise that over time we came to learn we didn't have. And, and if you really want to grow, you need capital, but you also have to have expertise in areas that, you know, quite frankly, not so good at. And what were those areas not so good at? First of all, systematizing everything. And then having the technology and the support to track it. So, you know, we had three software systems. And I would tell you, it was like the United Nations. They all needed headphones because they were speaking different languages. And we sort of would get data and we would make decisions based on that data. But did we really know exactly, you know, was this the, were we getting the real story from the data? And then, gosh, how long did we take? I mean, we were using a CRM and then our CFO would spend, you know, a two and a half days rectifying the data because it wasn't clean. It wasn't accurate. And this would be before we would do billings. So we did the most we could with the technology as an example that we had. But technology is an area that... Uh, you know, marketers like myself, oh, technology, big deal. But, you know, you can fly or die based on how well your technology helps you or hurts you. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about pre-merger Hanson McLean. Well, we always joke that we think we were separated at birth and they were, were twin brothers from different mothers. We compared the firms later on. There's so many things we do in common. Now, Hanson McLean really kept a great focus. And I think that's one thing that often entrepreneurs look at the next shiny thing. And then you look around one day and go, wow, Hanson McLean became a $2.5 billion AUM administration firm. We were 800 in round numbers kind of going, wow, well, you know, when you keep your focus, that's the hardest thing to do, I think, as an entrepreneur, and you can get addicted to new. So they're $2.5 billion. Uh, their clients look just like ours, typically 55, 60, good savers, responsible people, again, limited investment knowledge, patience, time, and energy to want to do it themselves. 
it also created a really strong position for themselves within first the Sacramento market and then other markets as they were expanding. So they had a lot of expanding experience, both through their retirement network and then through putting handsome clean offices in places like, as an example, Denver. They've done a really good job of capitalizing on their experiences and growing. So they had, if you will, they were further down the road and focusing on how education, uh, particularly live events, online resources, and podcasts. Uh, we produce and continue to produce a tremendous amount of content. They were much better at live events that we had really sort of not done as extensively as we do now. Again, and our online resources were fine. Podcasts, okay. But I think they were much better at all of those than we were. And then, of course, we have a very strong client experience, both of us, very high marks when we rate how our clients uh, feel about us. Got it. What do you think they were looking to solve for? Were they looking to solve for anything is probably a better way to ask the question as far as you know, or was it more just opportunistic, a like-minded firm came along and they jumped on the opportunity? I think at first, if you're just getting this business for the money, I don't think you ever have the same results as if you get in this business to help people. I really believe that. And I think in the case of, uh, of Hans McLean, and I think Pat McLean puts it pretty well, he describes an experience where his uncle passed away and he found out that his aunt was about to, uh, shall we say, be put under the knife of a broker at a wirehouse and annuities and uh, REITs and all. I mean, the commissions were going to be extraordinary. And I think what we both believe as firms and certainly what Hanson McLean felt was, wouldn't it be nice to have a place where if I had a, uh, a friend in Sacramento and they said, look, I love you, Nathan, but I really don't want to spend, you know, I'm not coming to Cincinnati to see you, that I could say, you know what? You can go see Hanson McLean in Sacramento. And as it worked out, the very first person I hired, my our first assistant and eventually a partner, Gene Plumley, had a sister who just had a real estate transaction. And she said to me, well, where can she, you know, Sandy, her, her sister Sandy, go to get some help? I said, well, matter of fact, I was going to call you anyway. She can go right down the street in Sacramento. Someday, somebody needs to put together a national RIA where you can go in and wherever you go, you can know that you've sent that person to someone. They'll be treated the same way. They'll be treated with a fiduciary standard first and foremost. Uh, that you not like going to a large wirehouse where there are 16 people and cubes and desks and chairs and offices. And you could have 16 different approaches to money. There's financial planning approach. There's a fiduciary approach. There's low-cost, inexpensive funds, exchange-traded funds, or the best of actively managed, and that the clients can be treated the same every place. So that's what they wanted to do, and that's what we had been trying to do. So once the conversation got started, it was easy. And how did the conversation get started? What was the introduction to Hanson McLean? Did you were you represented by an investment banker? Were you actively seeking them out? How did that work? Well, before we ever got involved with anybody, and there was two parties to this, there was uh, Parthenon Capital Partners and there was Hanson McLean. Before we did that, the one thing I would say, and you've heard this many times, uh, Mindy, run your business every day as if you might have to sell it tomorrow. And that will always keep you efficient. That will always keep you focused on uh, both providing good service to help your business to grow and your bottom line. So we had brought in a really talented team. We had uh, Matt Lynch from Strategy Resources, who was both a CEO and a kind of a vice chairman with me. We brought in Mark Goldberg, who was on our board of advisors, who is well-known in the broker-dealer community. And we brought in an outside director, a woman named Lynn Marmer, <clears throat> first woman executive at the Kroger Company, and the first woman to be on their board of directors. 
And uh, certainly, if you take a look at somebody who focuses on the consumer uh, at the real retail level, she certainly brought that experience. And so we first prepared ourselves for how shall we grow with a completely with a white piece of paper, not knowing how that would happen. And then over time, we actually had got into conversations with Parthenon, who called us up and just kind of said, hey, we have some ideas about how we think there's an opportunity in the investment world which is the mass affluent. Because when you look at all the mergers and acquisitions, everybody talks about 10 billion of this and 15 billion of that, and two firms together make a gazillion. And you listen to all that and you go, gosh, but 75% of the average RIAs out there are 100 million or less. And they're not the ones that get the press when uh, Investment News writes the article. So uh, first we got ourselves ready. Then we met Parthenon and we talked with them. They had great ideas. We really liked their investment theory, but it really needed a lead dog who had more infrastructure than we did. You know, we said, hey, keep talking. Who knows? People come, people go. You know how the phone rings all the time. You take a phone call, maybe you sign a confidentiality agreement. But the second time that we got a call from Parthenon and they said, hey, you know that idea we talked about? Yeah, yeah, sure. We liked it. What are you thinking? They said, well, we have a new firm in mind. And so we said, really? And they wouldn't tell us over the phone. They came out to see us, and we looked down the list of the top. We said, yeah, there's only one firm here, but it couldn't be them. They came, we had dinner, and they said, what do you think about forming, emerging with Hanson McLean? And we were good. We played it like poker. Oh, that would be nice. But inside, <laughs> inside, we were going, wow, that's, like, perfect. They are, yeah. like, just like us. There's, like, you know, you know, then it was just time and energy. So when it's right, you know it. But you know, it's building relationships as we did with our friends at Parthenon, and they are friends. And then being ready so that when the right opportunity comes along, you really don't have to think about it because you know exactly what you're trying to accomplish. And if it's if it's right, you'll know it. Right. So you hit on something really important, the notion that more than anything, like-mindedness, similarity in client focus, cultural fit is the most important thing because lots of firms could have interest in doing a deal doesn't always work. But let's pivot for a second. Let's fast forward. Today, you're a partner in a 3.3 or roughly $3.3 billion firm that's now one of the top RIAs in the country. What benefits came from that merger? And I guess what I'm asking is you talked about wanting to solve for continuity, for succession, to accelerate growth, to get access to capital, to gain expertise in systemization and tech support, et cetera. Do you feel like you solved for all of that? Yeah, we got it all. It was the perfect golf swing, right down the middle of the fairway. Everything that you mentioned, we would, if we went down a list that, you know, got it, didn't get it, waiting for it, hope it comes. No, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. And it just so happened that Hanson McLean does a retreat with their advisors and they take them off site. And so we brought all of the uh, Simply Money advisors to the uh, same location. And uh, it's great to have partners in California, by the way, because the weather is always much nicer than it is <laughs> here in the Ohio Valley. And several things happened. First off, as our advisors met Hanson McLean's advisors, everybody kept walking away going, oh, wow, they're just like us. Those are great guys. I really love them. And if you step back and, and it, we're watching the group and I said to you, well, they just met each other, you go, nah, you're kidding me. Really? Everybody just fit right in as if they'd known each other forever. And that's because the values are the same and what we think is important is the same. 
And then slowly over the course of that couple of days, our staff came up to Ed and me, and they basically said, you know, this is really going to be great for your legacy because you've really positioned us for growth. And as we bring in advisors, as we bring in administrative staff who become CFPs, we, just, we now have three people on our administrative planner support team all pass their CFP. Well, you know what happens after that? They want to become full-fledged advisors. Well, if you're not growing, you'll lose them. If you're listening, you think growth is an option, think again. It's not. And so as people came up to Ed and me and were saying that, what they were really saying was, you know, it's okay, Nathan, to go on to your new responsibilities. We're fine. And that really said to me at the end, what we really saw, the most important thing that we saw for besides for our clients was that our staff said, we're okay. You really positioned us well for the future. And I think while they never thought about it in the front of their brains, in the back of their minds, they always thought, what happens if those guys leave tomorrow? Well, it's, what is going to happen to us? And I will tell you, that is not a question that is on anybody's radar screen. And that's the best benefit, I think, for us. I, it sounds that way. But okay, we talked to a lot of advisors that are like you, looking to solve for many of those things, succession, continuity, accelerate growth, et cetera. But the thought of giving up complete control, the thought of losing any control, um, the thought of having to give up their autonomy, lose their voice, etc., oftentimes outweighs the idea of solving for those things. And we know, one, it comes down to how important it is to you to solve as a seller, to solve for those things. But talk to us a little bit, if you would, about the compromises you had to make, where you needed to be flexible, and how hard, if at all, it was to give up complete control and ownership. First off, if you've never worked in a team before, and it's always been a, you know, a dictatorship at your place and, you know, your way or the highway, that might be a, a challenge for you. Um, I will tell you, as you get older, you start to understand that your ego and your desire to be uh, at the center may blind you from legitimate opportunities uh, and other things that you may do or may want to do. So growth is not an option. And we're now in a world where more than ever before the next 10 years is not going to be like the last 10 years. I was at a meeting with your son, Lewis, and what I had to say there, I heard more conversations about the 65-year-old advisor and what are they going to do. Let me tell you what, 10 years ago, the 60-year-old advisor was 55. They had just survived the Great Recession. And over the last 10 years, they've been able to give a 4% distribution to their client. They've never had more than two, one quarter that was really down. Anytime there was anything that remotely looked like a correction, it was almost over before you knew it. You could go play golf. You could put it on automatic pilot, and everything was fine. If you think that the next 10 years are going to be the cakewalk, the last 10 years were, then you're not doing your preparation because it will not happen that way. Growth rates may not be the same. The way income is distributed, taxation, the wealthy getting wealthier, whatever your perspective is, political or otherwise, about economics, you're going to find the next 10 years are going to be a lot tougher than the last 10 years. The institutions are going to be coming in. Robos will figure out if they should be hybrids and how they'll use human beings, Fidelity, Schwab. They are all going to find ways to get more deeply into the business. And if you don't look at growth on a quarterly basis and see what it is that you need to do to move forward, you're probably moving backwards. And I'll go a step further. We're going to be in a fiduciary world before the end of the next 10 years, maybe the next five years, one way or another. And if you look at your income right now, I would respectfully suggest that 10, 15, 20% of it might be coming from variable annuities, 12B1s, C shares. There's something lurking in your, in your book 
but it probably represents if you are a self-standing business, 30 or 40 percent or more of your profit. You got to restructure. And in order to restructure, often you'll find it takes capital. And secondly, if you're not growing, they'll eventually catch up to you or your staff will leave. Your 40-year-old CFP who's been waiting around for you to finally decide to retire, well, they'll come to handsome McLean Simply Money. They'll say, hey, that's a place where I can grow. And maybe the one thing we have in common, we don't ask people to go out and prospect. That's the company's responsibility. We do that. We ask planners to plan. And so the next 10 years, if you think you can go along the way you've been going and everything's going to stay the same, I think that is a big mistake. And so what any business will do, forget private equity for a minute, they will look on a quarterly basis. Are we moving forward or moving backward? Are we doing positioning ourselves uh, for growth? And so if you don't want to be accountable, which is different than making decisions. But if you don't want to be accountable, then stay where you are. Absolutely. And someday we find out your business has changed or go, what happened? I think that you're 100% right. I couldn't agree with you more. It is fair to note, though, that there are some business owners that aren't necessarily interested in building an enterprise. So while, yes, I agree growth is not an option, they're okay running a practice as opposed to a business enterprise. But those that are looking that it is really important to solve for continuity, growth, systemization, et cetera, don't have a choice but to make sure that either they figure out how to gain scale on their own and remain relevant, or they do just what you did. So let me ask you a question now. We know that you've said that Parthenon Capital, the private equity firm that provided the capital for this deal, was really instrumental. So lots of principles of independent firms are dead set against taking private equity money because they believe that to do so would mean losing all control and the ability to build an enduring legacy. So talk to us a little bit about what kind of capital partner Parthenon is, and do they add any strategic value aside from just the capital infusion? Oh, sure. Well, first off, it's easy to say, as I kid uh, Scott and Pat, it's easy to say we were twin brothers from different mothers. But the fact of the matter is, when you do a merger, nothing good happens by chance. It has to be well thought out. And when you're with private equity or with any business partner who has been through this before, and the benefit for us as advisors is that we had a team on our board of directors, uh, Matt Lynch, Lynn, and Mark. We had three people who have been through a lot of rodeos. So they knew exactly what to do and how to do it. In fact, they did all the negotiating because uh, they're not emotionally attached as me or Ed might have been. But as you start to make it actually work, if you've got a good partner, they've got people with experience. As an example, they have a guy on their staff, Max, and Max does nothing but integration. And he's always looking at the human side of how do you bring this thing together? How do you make it work for everybody? How do you help everybody to have the outcome that they want? So I think you know, private equity really gets a uh, – maybe some of it is deserved, and if you meet somebody like that, you just walk away. But if you take away the term private equity, look at the people you're talking to and see whether or not they get it. See if you can trust them. See if they have experience. What can they bring to, to help? In our case, you know, I can just tell you technology, integration, capital markets, the ability to implement on a plan. That's what we looked at. First and foremost, the rest of it is just dotting I's, crossing T's and doing some math. But they have to have those kinds of, of skills in-house uh, or the ability to bring them to help things work. In their case, it's in-house and that makes it better. And how about the notion that private equity is not permanent capital? Well, I don't buy it. 
look, we can look at a couple of the largest RIAs in this country, and there have been a couple of huge transactions recently, and the private equity partners have changed two or three times along the way. But I think if you were to take a look today, for instance, at the Edelman financial engines transaction, you say, well, you know, private equity is not in it for the long term. Well, they're not in it for a long term for different reasons. One is they may not want to commit the kind of resources that are required, but there is usually somebody who wants to always take the ball and move it forward. The real question is, do you want to stay on the train or not? And so as the train moves, you may get a different engineer up here or a different engine that's pulling it along or, or pushing it along, as the case may be. But you can refinance your house five times, Mindy, and you can have five different banks, and yet the house gets look nicer the more you live in it. I've never seen that a, a, as an issue. It's not an issue for you. Got it. No, no. So tell us a little bit, if you would, about the courting process between Simply Money and Hanson McLean. How long did it take? It seems especially daunting on the outside to bring together three firms, two RIAs from different parts of the country and a PE firm. Well, first off, the good thing was that, the, that when we merged with Hanson McLean, they had already worked out all of what they needed to with Parthenon. So I'm dealing with one team and simply money advisors. Uh, now, answer that question in dog's life, because you know once you start the process and you realize that it's what you want, you go, oh, this is great. You know, you want to do it tomorrow. I'm a salesperson. I'm a marketing guy. I'm impulsive. Once I decide to do something, I want it done. So surround yourself with people who've been through the process, because it takes a long time. And you know, first you have to. Everybody listening probably at some point has sat down with somebody and signed a letter of confidentiality. Easy, probably meaningless, but it's, you know, it's an ante. You got to do that. Then you share a little data. Maybe if you're lucky, one in 10 ever gets to a point of serious discussion and eventually leads to a letter of intent. And then from that, maybe one in 10 ever leads to a definitive agreement, which eventually leads to have a close. And so you got to have patience. And I think in our case, the only thing that slowed us down was the fact that we had a 90-day notification to clients. If it had been 60 days, we would have been done a month earlier. So that's the only challenge is learning how to have patience and realize that, you know, hurry, it's going to be hurry up and wait. Uh, I think it was probably in broad broad numbers, about six months total for us, of which it could, it could have been five. That doesn't sound terribly long, given the nature of what you were doing. You mentioned clients, Nathan, and that was actually my next question. So how did clients react to the news of the merger? Anyone scared about losing access to you or the value of what you were doing changing? No. First off, when it comes to, to Ed and me, neither of us have met with clients for years. That was the first strategic decision we made. And I think it was a good decision because had, had clients still been dependent on us, that would have been a concern about a transition who's going to work with the clients. And it felt all along that shouldn't happen. I think we had six or eight clients out of over 1,750 who said, uh, you know, when we sent out letters, said, I don't want to go. One of them said they did not want to do business with anybody from that other country called California. And so they left. We got a lot more people who said, hey, congratulations. I know this is good for you. And it was very clear, by the way, to our clients. All they wanted to know was, is anything changing? We said, no, nothing's changing. They said, great. So Richard's still my advisor. Richard's still your advisor. Okay, that's good. Be well. Enjoy yourselves. If the clients are in your corner, it's great. So how was the merger? That was my next question. How was it better for clients or how is it better for clients? For clients, it just got better. We're able now to service our clients better because we're more efficiently organized at the back end. We took a look at our structure and it didn't involve, by the way, any layoffs. We didn't riff people. 
reductions in force. There was nothing like that. We just took a look at the resources we had and with our new partner said, is this the best way to be organized? We thought it was, but as we took a look at it, they said, well, have you thought about this? And what about that? And so we had good conversations. We said, hey, we could touch our clients in a lot of ways that we hadn't even dreamed of. We could use some of our video that's, that's now used uh, out in California and in Denver and San Francisco. On the other hand, a lot of their processes we now use here. So our client experience got a lot more personal, a lot more touches. We freed up staff to be much better in their interfaces with clients and the time they could spend and the quality of the time they could spend because you know the, the cardinal rule should be touch people not paper so the clients i think you know everything from you know little notes that we the staff now have time to write or maybe you know you listen and they say something you know we had a client pass away we planted a tree you know if they were jewish we planted a tree in israel if they were christian we planted a tree in the holy land you know, we were able to, to share ideas and get ideas on, on ways to communicate with the clients that, that really touched them and institute, by the way, also client appreciation, or excuse me, staff appreciation awards that drove the staff to immediately want to get that. And then that translates into how do you earn those? Well, you do better things for the clients. So our client experience got better. And I don't even think the clients realized it, but if you asked them today, I'm very confident they would say, oh yeah, I, can, I talked to someone some more than I have in the last two years. So what does the future look like for this $3.3 billion top RIA? What are the goals for the firm and its end game? Well, the end game right now is numbers are in numbers, whether it's 10 billion, 15 billion, I don't know. I think it's to find like-minded people who like to serve and work with the clients that we do. And I think, by the way, the clients that we work with make up the vast majority of our industry. But I understand that the $12 billion wealth management firms still get all the attention and all the press, by and large. We'll continue to grow and expand. We'll uh, hire some planners who want to just be planners and not have to uh, look at their church directory every day and say, gee, I wonder who I could get on this committee and who can I work with. Uh, Cincinnati was the gateway, if you will, to the Midwest to be a regional center and have a lot of resources here that we can help with people that are in our time zone, which makes it a little easier for everybody, plus our, our media capacities. And we'll continue to progress east and look for hubs, if you will, or for offices uh, or organizations like ourselves that would like to be part of building something that individually, I don't know if any of us could do, but that together, I know we can. And so to go back to your question about the advisor losing control, you can own 100% of your RIA or you can have 1% of Apple someday. Do the math. Great. Nathan, thank you so much. This was incredibly helpful. And I think a lot of folks, no matter where they sit today, will find your answers really informative. Every independent business owner, no matter where they are in the life cycle of their business, reaches a point where solving for continuity, succession, accelerated growth and expansion, and gaining scale become paramount. Nathan Backrack said it best when he said, run your business every day as if you're selling it tomorrow. And that's incredible advice from someone who had built a successful business and who had many options for how to monetize his life's work. He focused on ensuring his efforts turned into something good for himself, his family, his clients, and his staff. In our next episode, we will shift from talking about the end game and go back to the beginning to answer the question, how does an independent-minded advisor find support, camaraderie, and synergy if he leaves the mothership behind? 
and can an advisor go independent and not have to do anything but remain laser focused on his clients? For the answer to these questions and more, please tune in. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for some valuable content. And if you're not already a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have any specific questions, and I can always be reached at 908-879-1002 or by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please know that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. I thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.